Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? This is Trevor. Uh, go to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks to become a patron and all that good stuff. You get to get access to voice and Discord chat server, which allows you to talk to other fans, also allows you to know guests who are coming and to post questions to them, including today's guests and a bunch of other goodies, newsletters, show notes, things of that nature. And we have with us guest co-host Andre Domiz, if you want to just introduce yourself and let people know. Yep, uh, this is Andre, um, and uh, I'm with the, uh, the upcoming podcast network, Resistance Noir. So, uh, watch out for us, and uh, glad to be back on the show. Awesome, and we have uh, a very special guest, uh, Ishmael Reed. If you, I mean, you could tell people who you are, but I'm sure a lot of people already know. Yeah, well, I'm still teaching. Uh, <clears throat> haven't retired. I retired from the University of California, Berkeley, where I taught for 35 years. So now I'm teaching at the California College of the Arts. So I'm still at it. That's great. That's great. And it's it's hard to list all your accomplishments because you've been a pretty prolific uh, writer, but you've uh, written essays, novels. And I mean, I guess the easiest way to describe you as a writer, but I mean, if there's any other things you want to add about uh, how you feel you should be described, by all means, um, well, let um, know. Buffalo News called me a troublemaker, so that's good as anything. Black people. Boogeyman is another one that came up yeah, a lot. Absolutely. I'm, I'm the king of the, the Black Boogeyman. Yeah. there's a, there's I, have a, certain... I, have a I have a bestseller at uh, Audible called Malcolm and Me about my meeting Malcolm X in Buffalo, New York in 1962. I have a, uh, they, bought a they just bought a short story called The King's Fool, which takes place in 18th century uh, Germany. And uh, I have a theater project on Basquiat and Warhol a relationship. I have a novel coming out called The Terrible Fours, because I critics thought Terrible Threes was buried, so I'm coming back with The Terrible Fours. So I got some other stuff. I'm playing jazz piano. I went to London to play at a fashion show. Oh, and, nice. And uh, Naomi Campbell uh, Instagram my playing in the fashion show, which are the pinnacle of my career, except for, except for Tupac mentioning me in a song. Those are two things, outstanding things. Which song, by the way? Uh, I'm still, I Still Arise, or I'm, yeah, I Still Rise. Okay. Um, so I didn't know you had a Basquiat and Warhol uh, play. I had, I had no idea. Is that available for purchase or viewing Not anywhere? Not yet. We're getting ready to put it up. Okay. On, on Zoom, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've I've been... This isn't the main thing that I, we had you wanted to talk about, but I've always been very interested in the relationship between Basquiat and Warhol, but also... The slave and slave master relationship. Yes, yes. That The way I feel it's been kind of <laughs> lauded, the way I feel it's been kind of lauded is as this inspirational pro-Black story, when to me it's a cautionary tale. And I find it very weird that the... I feel a personal attraction to uh, his story because that was happening to me in New York, but I left. I was, I was, I said, if I hadn't left New York, I would have died of an overdose of affection. Yo, my God. Yeah, that's the way I feel too. Like people think that I have some kind of dislike of Basquiat, but it's not that. It's more that I think something about the way that they cover him that I think white people like to make him seem like this kind of martyr. No, he, comment, opposed to, he commented about how, how he's been covered. He said he's treated like a monkey. He yeah. commented how he's being covered and a savage and an animal. Definitely, definitely. And that they had a big role in what happened to him and the way that they treated him. And they really used him and used him up. Well, they put him in a dungeon-like situation and fed him with drugs like you do a horse, you know, like yeah. horse things to a horse. And so what he what they did was they overcommissioned him. So he had to work, you know, 24 hours a day to fulfill those commissions. And they could tell that he was so hungry for that white validation, those accolades and the fame that they really weaponized that white affection well, that's um, what, against that's them. What, that's what happens to tokens. I mean, that's what happens. I didn't want to be a to They're making me the token. I was supposed to be the token in waiting. Mm -hmm. I left in 57. I came to, I said, I want to go to the most savage part of the United States. So I came to Los Angeles. The most barbaric situation a city in the United States. So I came to Los Angeles. <laughs> Basquiat stuff. It's a story like older than time. Like, well, not older than time, but old enough. Like, I feel like Kanye has gone through that suffering. What's, what's interesting is that a lot of artists, a lot of Black people coming up, still look at it as an inspirational story. Like, we have rappers today saying, I want to be the next Basquiat. And mm -hmm. that's right. But in order to uh, be like William Burroughs and Charlie Parker, he had to take drugs. Mm -hmm. That was yeah. the same in the 50s. In order to play like Burge, you had to take drugs. What was interesting was like this one rapper called ASAP Ferg, and he was saying how he admires uh, Basquiat so much. And when they asked him, what do you admire about Basquiat? And they were saying like he was sleeping with the best white women, like um, Madonna, that he uh, 
had the fashion world on lock. That he had all this stuff. But I'm like, oh my God, this guy, all he sees in Basquiat, it's not the monkey thing, the used up thing, the overcommission to work 24 hours. And I'm really glad you said that because he was very, very prolific. That's one thing that I will give him regardless of what you think about the character of his work. He worked 24-7. And in this so Protestant... I talked talk, talk to Corinne Jennings, who's one of the few black people on the gallery. Yeah. And he's right. He's one dimensional. He never grew. And if you look at if you look at his stuff, like, you know, what, thousands of stuff that you left behind, it's like, it becomes monotonous after a while. Yeah, well, he, he did even talk about, like, how, um, like, he, he did have a skill, like, he has illustrative skill, um, but it just, it never really some, seemed to come out in his work. And I was, I was wondering why that was, because it was a Basquiat exhibit um, in Toronto a few years ago. And that was one of the things that, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll say this real quick. He was working yeah. too much. He was working too much and doing drugs and being too famous. Like, there's a, there's a, there's a, a certain amount of solitude and withdrawal from the public sphere and activity that it takes to kind of grow. You know, what does it, if you go to the gym, the muscles get built really during the um, rest period. You can't just work out 24-7. Yeah, you yeah. actually get, get smaller. I, that's my thought. Well, one thing I kind of wondered was, is it possible that that's what that's all that was expected of him? So that's what he continued to produce. It's like, it's like yeah, I, I've got, you know, this, uh, this talent in my repertoire, um, but it doesn't get utilized because that's not what sells or if it's just that he didn't grow as an artist. That's what I'm curious about. I have one quote that I read from him uh, in the recent newsletter sent an article there were there were three there were three big guys that were coming up it was it was Basquiat Herring and then it was a third guy it turns out this guy is the only one still alive ironically he's like probably the least famous you know I think there's some kind of you talking about Schnabel Schnabel yeah he was very jealous of him. You can see it in the film. Yeah, yeah. Schnabel had a role to play um, in, the, in the film. You know, very jealous of him. And one of the quotes that um, they mentioned, that they mentioned in the article was, um, you're talking to Basquiat, and things were blowing up for all three of them at that time. And they were very competitive. He even admits that they were competitive. They said one of the things Basquiat said, everyone, whether it's in a critical way or a praiseworthy way, one thing they, everyone agrees on is, is the people who knew him and loved him and the people who knew him and hated him is that he was obsessed with fame. And one of the quotes that they uh, attributed to him was, I'll get famous first. I'll worry about the craft later. That's a paraphrase. Yeah, well, he said New York is killing me, too. Yeah, that's it. That, too. That plays a vampire tale. They use the imagery of vampirism when they talk about his relationship with Warhol, like, you know, Warhol needed new blood. I mean, that took off from that. Yeah, and and Warhol Warhol was a very interesting one in and of himself, and he had a series of people for decades that he pretty much like Warhol was the original like uh, fame whore, the person who was obsessed with you know, but uh, he also a parasite. A lot of other people did his stuff. He was honest about. It. He said he does other people because it's easier. Well, one thing about Warhol, at least, he was on top of the food chain, you know, of of the parasites. Well, he was a, he was his own brand. I mean, his whole thing was about bands. Yeah, yeah. But he's from the church. See, that's my angle. He's in a Greek Byzantine church, which uh, is all obsessed with icons. So, you know, his whole thing was about icons. And after she was, he, he was shot, he went back to the church. He started doing religious drawings, paintings. That's really interesting. I mean... He dropped, he dropped, the, truck. He dropped the, the hangers on. He dropped them. They're all, they're all pissed off about it because, you know, they had really contributed to the films without being paid. Taylor Mead said if Valerie uh, Solanas hadn't shot him, he would have. Because he exploited all of it. That is one thing I will say about um, Kanye, as opposed to like, and I've been studying fools since the middle uh, since the middle ages, from researching my short story, so I can spot a fool. He's a he's the court fool for the uh, Trump show. The one thing's interesting about Kanye, though, he's both the Warhol and the Basquiat because he's he's other people's Basquiat, but he also is a Warhol in his own camp and has his own Basquiat. So he's kind of interesting, whereas I feel like Basquiat was just a fool being used. Like, like Kanye's interesting in that he has a... Hip-hop is being used. Hip, like in, in Hamilton. In Hamilton. I mean, somebody just noticed that, you know, there was a hip-hop play about Tupac Shakur. That failed, but they loved the Hamilton hip-hop, which is like Liberace hip-hop, you know? What a down tone. Oh, yeah. I, I, I was uh, looking forward to talking to you about that as well. Yeah, as a person who's like looked at a lot of stuff, been around, I think that uh, hip hop has a high mortality rate. I, why, why doesn't anybody notice that? A lot of suicides, shootings, and you know, it's like a, sort of like a death-oriented movement. Well, except I mean, you, for, except for the commercialized people, you know. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. I, I've noticed that there are killings and suicides and 
just seems like a self-destructive movement. But I mean, you could expand it to just uh, black men in general, like uh, black men in general, there's a huge death rate among black men, but that's very normalized. It's not right. really. Oh, that, happened. that happened because of uh, crack. I live in a black yeah. ghetto. So I saw it happen from my front porch. If you look at the black on black crime in the 1980s, it's like a big dip. Then all of a sudden, when Reagan and those people introduced crack into the neighborhoods, it's sharp. So these are these are turf wars. I go to, I go to police meetings in order to sell their their product, CNN and MSNBC and the networks. They never mentioned the connection between the Contras putting crack in these neighborhoods. There were a thousand crack houses in Oakland at one time. There was a crack house across. There were two crack houses. We got one torn down. But it, there's it coincides with the introduce, introduction of crack. Jesse, and they they can't talk about that. You know. Tiffany Cross, you see her moderating uh, Joy Reid's show? Uh, I know she I know she is, but I, it's very hard for me to watch Joy Reid. I, I can't do it. She said there are things that she can't say on MS, MSNBC. And uh, Don Lemon said there are certain things he can't say on CNN. What they can't say is like the Reagan administration's counter thing connected with the upsweep in crime because these are turf wars. These guys are fighting over markets in Chicago and other places. They can't well, talk, mean, and they can't talk about the gun stores in the suburbs, bringing drugs, guns into Chicago. Jesse Jackson was the only one who demonstrated before one of these uh, gun stores in the suburbs. So the, so the guns that are coming into our neighborhoods are coming from one or two gun stores in the suburbs, in Oakland, for example, and in Chicago. Well, like one of the things about the whole black male death thing is even without the uh, crack epidemic, which made it even worse, like at, at almost any period in American history, thanks to white supremacy and other things, uh, black male death has always been kind of the most common death going on. But it's so normalized, I think, that, e- that, that even... that Not black on black crime, the soaring rates that are happening oh, now. Oh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 black yeah. on black crime. Yeah, but I'm, I'm talking about black male death in general, no, no matter the source. I'm just talking about black male death in general, no matter the source, has been always the most uh, prevalent type of death. And I think to the point, just black male death is considered, black males are considered expendable bodies. Black male death is considered kind of just like the norm to the point that it has to get really crazy for people to even care. And I think that's the problem with uh, all the black male death in hip hop. People just think, oh, black men are supposed to die. That's the American, I think, Ideal. That's why it was genius for them to open up Hamilton in New York because nobody cares about black historically. Nobody cares about black death in New York. Yeah. Have been there have been mass murders, riots against black men, lynchings. They used to lynch people in Washington Square Park. Uh, uh, most of the, most of the whites in New York were four stop in Prince. So I mean, this is a perfect place where they open up, up the, open up this musical Hamilton because black ma- black lives don't matter in New York City historically since the seventeen hundreds. And to me, like, that's one of the reasons why there's so much um, outrage over the black trans death thing, because uh, the black trans death, when they when you crunch the numbers and see the amount of black trans people in the population, uh, how many actually exist, the race that they die at, the people have found they die at the same rate and arguably even less than black men have been dying for like the past couple of decades. Once it's not, once you have another identity besides being a black man, like say a black trans, suddenly people's eyes just open up and say, wait a minute, this is too much death. But it's the same amount of death that you found normal mm-hmm. for decades when it was happening to uh, black men. So it kind of makes it even obvious why it's, there's almost something really helpful in having an extra identity besides being just black, especially being just a black man, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I want to say one last thing about the Basquiat thing before we go on to Hamilton, because I want to talk about that primarily, but you just touched on one of my favorite topics, so I got a little sidetracked. But um, quick correction, the third person in this particular article was somebody called Scharf. Mm. Uh, they didn't interview uh, Kenny Scharf, not uh, Schnabel. He was someone that was a little more friendly to... Um, was he a graffiti artist? Graffiti artist? No, he was more of a traditional artist. He wasn't a familiar, uh, graffiti, graffiti artist. He was the only one that was um, still alive out of out of that that group, yeah, he was he was the one that that said that uh, Basquiat was worried more about being famous and and the skill could come could come uh, later. But he also talks about how everybody ended up used used up and and dead by the time it was all done. But um, the reason I wanted to talk about real quick was. You talk about tokens and stuff and the history. And before we get to Hamilton, can you talk really quick? You seem to have a, from the outside looking in, reading the articles, I can't speak for you, uh, but you seem to have a kind of love-hate, ambivalent relationship to uh, James Baldwin and his reputation. I kind of want to get your feel about that because as someone who's absorbed him decades after the fact, and I went to see 
the James Baldwin uh, documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, something about it kind of disturbed me. And it was something that I kind of recognized happening today. But I was like, there was something about the way white liberals even today ingest Baldwin that is very similar to how they ingest uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates in very, pro- in very similarly problematic ways, where they kind of just view him as some kind of um, redeemer of white uh, sins, you know? Uh, Coates was, uh, was less is less ambitious than Baldwin. Baldwin's very ambitious. I mean, he had to shoot down a whole lot of black writers in order to get to the top of the heap, like Langston Hughes, you know, like Chester Hines. Richard Wright, too. That's his most famous takedown. Uh, yeah, yeah, takedown Richard Wright. People don't look like, look, they don't look at the politics behind that takedown. You see, uh, Baldwin has the support of the New York literary elite at the time who are anti-communist and anti-Stalinist, like the Protestant Review crowd. Protestant Review crowd had problems with Richard Wright because he belonged to a rival movement, the John Reed Club in Chicago. So that was like a, a, a hit job that Baldwin did on Richard Wright. I mean, who was he to talk about protest novels? He's got protest lines in all of his work. So uh, people don't look at the, the, academics don't look at the politics behind this stuff. My problem with Baldwin, and I knew the guy, is that, and this is the problem with all tokens, they smother a generation of writers, black writers, who can write as well, or even better, right? But don't have the connections. That's the very definition of a token. Like by definition, there can only be one. Right. If there's twenty or thirty, then you're not token anymore. So, so Tanisha Coates, uh, Tanisha Coates uh, is a good writer. Uh, I read a lot of manuscripts. This is sort of like the golden age of black writing. I mean, if you talk about what's happening in the West Coast, the South, but you know, it seems that the literary elite in Manhattan are the ones who dictate uh, trends in not only black literature but theater and other other forms of art. So he came along where. They were looking for a bounty hunter, a literary bounty hunter. They picked him up. So he had to hit a, hit a whole lot of black people before he rose to the top. He has, he's never written a novel as well as, uh, or as good as uh, Chester Himes, uh, If He Hollers, Let Him Go. If He Hollers, which is, takes place in 1940s uh, Los Angeles and considered the great Los Angeles novel. Uh, Margaret Walker, Jubilee, because there was misogyny around the time. Uh, her book has never gotten the, the uh, frame that it deserves. I've taught that book. You want to know about what black people have been through? That's a gr- great book should be taught in tandem with uh, with Uncle Tom's Cabin. You know, one from the inside, because she depended upon oral history and her family, and one from the outside, uh, Harry Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. So people seem to want to, uh, the problem with the, this, the Baldwin Renaissance, and you have what you, a lot of Baldwin clones on TV who are attempting to out-eloquence each other, is that they don't follow Baldwin all the way through. Because at first, Baldwin said he would redeem not only liberals, but black people too. Boy, preacher. Boy, Preacher, with the Harlem novel, is all about his becoming initiated into Christianity. He was a preacher when he was a kid. So his whole offering to the liberals was redemption. And he said they were innocent. Okay. He's writing a, a, writing a letter to his nephew. The language is too sophisticated to appeal to a nephew. He's talking to the liberals over his shoulder who are looking at him, looking at the manuscript over his shoulder. And his whole thing was that you don't know what you're doing. He referred to them as a course of innocence. Let me teach you. Let me like life coach you. That's been yeah. business. All these people writing books about white people. This is, how, this is how to talk to black folks. There's a whole industry of that. But I mean, his whole thing was like, I can redeem you. Then by the time he fell out with his sponsors and they replaced him with Eldridge Cleaver, who became the token, he was disillusioned with them because he wrote a, uh, tell me how long's the train been going? Why don't you hear about that novel very much? That is probably one of the novels. And that was my problem with um, I Am Not Your Negro. Because when I watched I Am Not Your Negro, because I know a lot about different things that Baldwin has done. I kind of knew a little bit of that arc and I've read like a different combination of things. And some of the stuff is what you said, where it's like the whole white ally industrial complex and it's made for the white gaze. Ta-Nehisi Quartz had a similar thing with uh, Between the World and Me. Is that what it's called? Where it's ostensibly for his son. But when you read it, it's so clearly not for his son. It's clearly mm-hmm. made for white uh, liberal readers. He, a lot, oh, he had, a lot. He had, he's had a powerful sponsor. The Atlantic, yeah. Atlantic Monthly. Atlantic Monthly, very powerful. Jeffrey Goldberg said that he doubted whether blacks or women could write a 15,000-word essay. And then he backed off. He had to walk that back because it sounded racist. But he has a powerful back. These are neocons. Yeah. These are these are people who supported the war in, in Iraq. You know, it's, it's a neocon magazine with a lot of power, very influential, and he's their token. And I don't know whether he realizes that or not, but now there's a big battle going on. There's a big token war going on in Manhattan. I'm looking at this. One. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's the best way to put it. But there, but there was like a big, you know, knockdown, drag out uh, fight between 
uh, two black writers in the New Republic, like going at each other, like the, what do you call that thing? The, uh, what else in the battle, battle royal in yeah. this one? It almost kind of reminds me of the battle scene from uh, Invisible Man, you know, the, right. the boxing match. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we had them knocking each other in the head for the entertainment of liberals. In the New Republic. Who were the New Republic guys, by the way? Do either of you remember by name? Not important. You know who they are. They're all jumping on Cornell West now. Oh, yeah. Because he may say, he said some painful things about uh, Farrah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. But that, that's, the other, that's the other part, too, is that, like, it seems that at uh, different junctures, it's almost like um, there's, like, uh, either a favored black writer or a set of favored black writers, and there's always somebody who's out of favor, and then it's necessary to attack that person uh, because the because of the type of the analysis that they bring. So when, for example, Cornell West uh, wrote that uh, piece about, uh, well, he didn't, he didn't write a piece. It was actually, I think it was a Facebook post about uh, ta says we were eight years in power. Um, then suddenly you saw like... There was a whole article. There was a whole article? Okay. I thought I could have sworn it was a Facebook post, but yeah, it was a... Or, or maybe it started as that and then they commissioned yeah. him to write a whole article, but there was a long ass article. Oh, wait, uh, that Cornell West wrote? Yeah, about ta Coates. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and people were upset because he hadn't even read the book, but the point he was trying to make was that uh, what's lacking in this writing is is a material analysis, and that's when you saw for probably about like three or four months straight. And then this was this would just happen over and over. Is that somebody would take another swipe at, uh, at Cornell West, and people were saying that he was jealous, that he was uh, uh, you know being a hater, which was incidentally a lot of the same things that they were saying about his criticism of Barack Obama uh, after his election in 2008. So it seems like West is out of favor, but suddenly now with a lot of black liberals, he is back in favor. Um, and it's people that are sort of to the left of him that are now taking the hits. Yeah, but you know, nobody nobody uh, asks the masses of people what they think about it. Yeah, exactly. I look at, I see that. I look at the intellectuals. Uh, I look at intellectuals on television. You have to have a post-colonial glossary to understand what they're talking about half the time. 75, 70% of black people are for Biden. Yeah, but you get this you get this clique of intellectuals. They all know each other. They have sort of like a little clique there, and they got the jargon, all new theory stuff, and the jargon down. And uh, it their 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 opinions are, are the opposite. I have a I have a friend named Eddie Glaude. He's a good writer. Oh yeah, he's great. He told black people not to vote for Clinton in states where she might win, and then he was shocked that uh, Biden, uh, excuse me, Trump won. I mean, I don't know. How, and there were other black intellectuals who were saying, you know, don't stay home, or you know. Vote Green Party or whatever. So, I mean, we don't choose those people. The booking people at MSNBC and uh, and CNN have more power to direct trends in Black political thinking than Blacks have. You know, that's how it happens. Because I asked somebody I know at CNN, how many, what is the, the racial uh, composition of the bookers, people who book these people? And uh, it's pretty much like, uh, you know, those Confederate statues. <laughs> I mean, it's the same complexion, you know. Right. So, so what what I say is that black opinion is on the occupation. You know, like it's like we're in some kind of a you know state broadcasting, you know, government state broadcasting where certain people are chosen to be spokesperson, and they have no control of what they can say. You know, their opinions. I mean, one thing that's happened to me is I've gotten into arguments with people online about some of the crazy things that uh, black feminists say about black men in front of white audiences. And then I've had like white people jump in my mentions and they'll be like, well, you know what? Um, maybe you should read such and such person. I'm like, I don't need to read that person or I've read that person. Like just because I'm not agreeing with what the person's saying doesn't mean that A, I haven't read the person myself or B, that I can't understand. I just think that the whole boogeyman thing is not supported by the data and is messed up. But the white people feel the comfort to use these people and weaponize them against other uh, black people. It's become a product. It's become a product. Yeah. And I got into a little trouble down in Orlando where they had a Zorro Lynn Hurston uh, conference. I said white men have made all the money on black feminism. They've elvised black feminism. Steven Spielberg, the guys who did uh, what love had have to do with it, where, you know, Tina Turner is rescued by Phil Spector, right? And uh, another, The Help, which was written by, uh, written and directed by a white guy. The Help, you know, the one that... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With Octavia Butler and, yeah. Catherine Stockett co-opted black feminism, made more money than all of them, $38 million. And uh, in, the, in the movie... This happens during the time that Mega Evers was killed. All the white guys are benevolent. One of them helps the black woman with her groceries and stuff. Nobody belongs to the Klan or White Citizens Council. And the boogeyman is, uh, is a guy named Leroy. We don't even see him. He beats his wife. So the black boogeyman is, is like steel. They're probably making more money than steel. I, there's something on right now called uh, P-Town. Have you watched that, Provincetown? Uh, I've heard about it, but I haven't watched it yet. Got like a 400-pound black guy going around beating up white women. And see, when I say that, when I say that uh, 
the kind of images they have of blacks in the movies, black men in the movies and television are similar to the Nazi images of uh, Jewish men doing the the Third Reich, people get in, they haven't looked at it. I looked at it. I examined some of this material. I was going to say, we had a discussion of the movie Harriet, uh, that film based on Harriet Tubman a while back. They introduced um, a fictional uh, black male character named Bigger Long, like of all things that they had to name the guy, you know, and, and his job was to catch uh, runaway slaves. Mm-hmm. You know, and the very last time that he delivers in the movie before he's killed by the white slave master is you won't die, bitch, to Harriet Tubman. Mm-hmm. And the only person who kills um, black people, I mean, black women in the whole movie is Bigger Long. Bigger uh, Long yeah. the, white, the white male slave catcher is almost posted as some kind of star-crossed, ambivalent um, lover who's in love with Harriet Tubman and feels ambivalent about it. And he and the white slave owner, the white slave owner, the white slave master is the one who actually saves Harriet Tubman from the murderous black man that didn't even exist in real life. And what was very interesting was all that's crazy enough, but this was what I thought was really interesting because now there's a flattening of media and academia and whatever, where they just recruit these tokens from all over. Uh, you're talking about the jargon that they all use. It's impenetrable, that this theory jargon. One good word now to spot these people, and the word itself is not inherently bad. It has a good use, but uh, when these people use it, it's frivolous, it's uh, decolonize or decolonial. As soon as you hear decolonize, like mm-hmm. your antenna should go up. This person's going to maybe talk a lot of bullshit. But um, they had a bunch of people on a, on a press tour organized by the movie studio where these people were actual historians, black historians in uh, different departments across the country, some of them pretty prestigious. And they brought these um, historians onto these panels that were masquerading as academic panels, but were really organized by the movie studio yeah, sure. to promote the movie. So it's like, is this a press junket or is it an academic panel? But no, it's fake academic panels organized by movie studios. So then people in the audience started getting, and this is where I think what you said about what did the masses think? Or what did the constituents think? You know, not what the white handlers think. A lot of black people in the audience were like, what the fuck's with this bigger long thing? Uh, he didn't exist. There were no black... Uh, slave catchers, at least not institutionalized, like what you put in whatever. And the actual academics and historians, like people with PhDs in history and who write on these topics, were straight up telling people in the audience, regular folk, regular black folk, uh, salted earth black people, mm-hmm. that it doesn't matter if it's true or not. Uh, the spirit of it is true. Yeah, well, Daryl Zanuck did the same thing. You know, W. Du Bois and all of them went to Hollywood to protest about uh, Gone with the Wind. Uh, Walter White from the NACP suggested that Daryl Zanuck read Black Reconstruction before he did that movie. So they were critics. And what Daryl Zanuck did was to invite them to the studio and, and wine and dine in, in a cafe. And that was enough for that. I think it probably takes a little more money. See, I had the same problem with Hamilton now. Yeah. So they, they chose some uh, academics to attack us. And one of them, uh, as a matter of fact, we got a Facebook thing today where they said, well, Joanna Freeman of Yale backed uh, Hamilton to, to refute our position. Uh, she was on the payroll of Hamilton. As a matter of fact, I wrote her and asked how much she Mm. That's how much she got paid. So they they bought out academics. She's not the only one. Yeah, yeah, they buy them out all the time. Uh, they do they they do that all the time. They get the black people to go out and defend these products. For example, there's a backlash on the wire now because of this anti police thing that's going on. They send a black actor out, or David Simon, the producer, Richard Price, the writer, uh, George Pelicanos, the writer. They hid in the hiding in the bunker. They did the same thing with uh, Tarantino's movie. Okay, they sent. Uh, Miss Washington out to defend it. They did the same thing with the help. They sent the black actress out to defend it. They did the same thing with Precious, which is the worst movie ever made about black life. Okay, oh, terrible. And the, and the marketing plan behind that was very sinister. I, I, I followed the marketing plan for two years. First, Harvey Weinstein tried to buy, <laughs> Harvey Weinstein tried to buy it. The rights of Precious, ironic, no? And uh, yep. they said we cannot sell this to black audiences. This, this film, I mean, you know, we can sell it to the mall, but we can't sell this film to black audience. They got over with Winfrey. Yep. And uh, and I think it was, was it Tyler Perry? Tyler Perry, too. We got them to come on as producers. That's when the distributors said they'll do it because they got these two black people. You'll notice they didn't get any awards for producers because they didn't see it. They saw it after the cut. Yes. So that's what they do. They get black people to go out and front this stuff. I found that out, too, after the fact, because when I saw it, I was really disgusted. Then when I looked it up and I found out the history of the development of it, they weren't real producers. They were kind of attacked on after the fact. And I think they just took a fee to allow their names to be uh, used for it. And they kind of um, changed the narrative to make it seem like 
this was something that they were actively involved in, but they came in late, late in the game. But the one thing I was going to say before is, at least in your earlier example with Gone with the Wind, those people had to be bought. They came in as protesters and whatever. But nowadays, these people don't even start off on the opposite aisle and need to be bought. They come in pre-sold. They come in offering. Uh, so, so with the Harriet Tubman thing, these people, it was never even a possibility that they were going to go against the studio or whatever is going to get them white acceptance. Well, that they, was they, never they, even they, an option. They also think they can get a better deal with African-born uh, actors. That's true. You understand? Because... UK-born actors, if you... Yeah. I mean, I see a trend there where African-Americans, you know, are, are portrayed by... Uh, African actors, you know, I mean, you know, you have Martin Luther King with a British accent. I mean, that's it's okay. It's fine. But uh, they don't, I don't know if they know they're being exploited. So the, the actress who played in Harriet, she said that the only way you can get, or she retweeted, this I, you know, you heard about that retweet, right? Oh, I know about all her tweets. She has a lot of bad tweets. Yeah, yeah. She has a lot of really... Uh, she had a retweet saying the only way you can get black people. Home. As a matter of fact, we had a pretty lengthy back and forth exchange, actually, uh, where I asked, I was like, well, if you're, you know, playing a black American character and you're, you're, you're co-signing all of these negative sentiments about black Americans, like how, how can you possibly, uh, you know, play somebody that is revered within the black American canon? Do you not see a conflict there? And she tried to make it out to be like a, you know, a misunderstanding and that she'd like taken back her sentiments and so on. But at the same time, like I've seen that same kind of disdain that diasporic Africans have for black. It's almost like they revere the cultural power that black Americans have, but it's almost like, but if I had the opportunity to this, I could do it better, you know? And some of them have even come out and literally said that, well, you know, we take these roles because we are better. Well, they say they're British trained. Yeah, which which to me, when, when you watch Harriet and you watch her acting in Harriet, I don't care what she was trained. That was not a great acting <laughs> job. I'm sorry, it's not. There was there were two emotions, uh, you know, her face aghast uh, with, with, with her mouth hung and open and her face in a state of concentration with her eyebrows pinched together. And those were the only two emotions I saw throughout the whole film. I was saying... Uh, when we did a podcast on it, I was saying she reminded me of the old uh, spook trope that they used to have, or like Mantan Morning. Like, like, I, like I was saying at one point, I thought she was gonna say like, "Feet don't fail me now." Like, it's <laughs> all she was doing with her eyes, was bucking them out, bucking her eyes all the time. Yeah, all all the time. I'm like, so it was either um, the the emotions that Andre described, or just the bucking her eyes thing. And I'm like, this just looks like um, Mantan Morning. When uh, when she saw um, Janelle Monae's character get killed, uh, who was also a fictional character. But she saw, you know, the uh, the black the fictional black male killing the fictional black woman, and then her immediate reaction is the 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 bucking of the eyes, and then she, you know, she skedaddles, you know. So regardless of where you were trained, I mean, I just thought that it was overall the the production was terrible, and it was just a, a I think a, like an insulting well, portrayal able, of the character. They'll be able to see my my Harriet Tubman played by Roz Fox because we're going to put uh, the home of Lynn Manuel Miranda up on Facebook. <laughs> days yeah and uh, they'll be able to see our, our interpretation of that period oh nice so so it's going to be available on facebook to anybody who wants to see it yeah i was i was actually upset because i don't live in new york and i you know i don't i don't get to see broadway plays i don't get to see off-broadway plays or anything i'm i'm in toronto so i only ever get to see uh what comes up to canada and r like rarely anything black gets on a large stage up here you know uh, we have to really fight to get uh stage productions done in the toronto area so being able to see that would be huge i had a debate with the the black man who's connected with the Toronto Film Festival about Precious. Cameron? Yeah, he boy, he's really eager to get Precious up there. <laughs> yeah, Cam Cameron's, I mean, I, I, I like him. I like I like what he's uh, he's trying to do with the film festival. And at the same time, I think that there's just something in the nature of a massive film festival like that where it, it, it basically just uh, blanches out culture. And uh, a lot of the films that should be seen up here, um, especially in front of the Toronto audiences, like we're one of the most diverse cities in the whole world don't get seen up here, you know, so to it's be able to... It's not even a Tarantino film, but we had a debate and he and the announcer double, so ambush me, he and the announcer was pro, you know, Tarantino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I could see that happening. So anyway, uh, we, we got a GoFundMe, we got a GoFundMe thing up. My Hamilton and theirs, we got a GoFundMe thing because we're paying for this, uh, paying for this thing to, to be boosted for uh, YouTube. And so we have all our characters, Native mm -hmm. Americans, uh, indentured servants, Hamilton slaves, Angela, Angela, uh, Angel Angelica Scala, the Scala, those Scala girls had slaves all their lives. Oh yeah. To, to portray, portray them as abolitionists is really phony. But they say, well, you know, finally he's saying that we backed them all against the wall. First they were saying that Hamilton was an abolitionist, but we've refuted that. Then they said he was against slavery. Then we cited the fact that when the Haitians uh, rose against the French slaveholders, Hamilton and Jefferson 
defended the or tried to get money to the slaveholders. Now they say now uh, the latest is that uh, Miranda says, well, he might have had some stuff in there about slavery, but he there was so much he could get in, and it might have been cut. Blah 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 blah. So we backing them all against the wall, and so I think it probably annoys Disney with their money that every time, I mean, frequently in the coverage of uh, Disney Hamilton, they mention us, CNN, uh, Germany, England. We, so we're stalking them. And so I think it's time for us to put our version up. And I think the release on um, Disney Plus has really kind of helped because I've seen the timing of your um, play combined with the researches because it was kind of becoming a dead topic, Hamilton, and the fanfare over the return of it uh, via the film and Disney Plus, I think has in a way helped reboost focus on the criticism of it. And I feel like the criticism this time around has gotten a lot more traction. I think the climate is better for the criticism. Well, you got a hashtag uh, cancel Hamilton with thousands of followers. Oh, nice. Nice. Is the crowdfund on GoFundMe or I just want to pl- plug it real quick before we continue. GoFundMe. My Hamilton, go find me. I'll put some coins towards that for sure. If you saw that, uh, I'm not even sure why this happened, but uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda is followed by like 3.2 million people, which I'm not, I don't know what the population is of Puerto Rico, but I'm pretty sure it's less than 3.2 million people. And uh, uh, the night that Disney premiered, Hamilton, uh, he ended up locking his account. And I think it's, I think it could be because there were a lot of people really dogging him and, and, and dogging the production because he was live tweeting throughout the whole thing. And then as soon as the, uh, the, 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 uh, uh, the, his life tweeting was over or the, uh, the, the play was over, then he locked his account uh, with 3.2 million people following him. So what does that really do? Well, they brought an NACP official out to back it, uh, to praise it enthusiastically. But the NACP also backed uh, the color purple and precious. And, and, and you know, one thing that's interesting about um, the whole the whole deal with this this Hamilton thing is even beyond the politics, the craft of it is just not very good. So sometimes even when people tell me, yeah, you know, I feel you. Uh, I really hate the politics of it. You know, even though I like the craft and I'm like, even that's a deal breaker for me. If you tell me if you're going to come here and tell me that you like the craft, then then you're still not someone I want to talk to. Even, like, I don't want you to come on board and say you like the craft, but uh, the politics are bad because that level of rap, if it was like um, all black people doing that level of rap, I don't think it would be anywhere as popular as it is. That is just terrible, even on a, even on the craft level. And that to me itself is a little bit of um, racism to me, like that you can make that much money being that mediocre at rap. You know, my, my spouse is a very famous choreographer and she said the dance stuff was derivative of a uh, chorus line. And as a matter of fact, the choreographer who did it was a fan of, uh, was Michael Bennett did chorus line. So, so they, you know, they were borrowing from here and there, but th- what they did was they, got, they tried to cover up this text which if you look at the text, it's all about honoring slaveholders. And Hamilton wasn't shy about it. He didn't hide it. He left invoices. You know, he paid $250 for a black mother and her child. So we got that black mother in our play. And Angelica, she owned slaves. And they found, they did an archaeological dig of the remains. They found the remains of the slaves who worked on the Scala plantation. Said they were subjected to back uh, backbreaking work and, you know, malnutrition and retreated horribly. And those women were in the household. And those slate and they were runaways. They captured runaways and tortured people. And as, as a matter of fact, I ran across something I wrote a poem about that's coming out in a Random House anthology called 400 Years, coming out next year, about how three teenagers were hanged in 1793 in Albany by Schuyler, General Schuyler, and his Dutch friends. They were accused of arson, but there's also a point of view that had them upset about the Haitian Revolution. They thought the Haitian Revolution would come up the coast and go into all it scared it scared daylights everybody that Haitian revolution so I mean that that's also part of the story you know now you know they're ter- they're taking down General Schuyler's statue in Albany oh, I didn't know that we're taking the statue down in Albany but I say why are you gonna take his statue down and, and you got Hamilton's statue over there and I went to I went to Hamilton's tomb it's like a shrine right now I was taking a photograph and this German tourist said don't 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 step over there sir a, t- a tourist tells me nothing you know, oh, wow. Audacity. So people are throwing coins at it and, you know, making wishes. I mean, this guy, this guy was in, uh, involved in slave trade all of his life. Yeah, but when people come at me over my complaints about Hamilton, they'll be like talking about him and they really think he's the guy in the play. It's very scary. Like they really think he's he's that guy. You know, they even some people even think like he had multiracial friends uh, uh, back in the Caribbean island. He was born. I'm like, no, he grew up there like isolated from, you know, he wasn't hanging out with slaves. He wasn't well, he going inherited, to well, he inherited slaves. He, he didn't have any slaves, but he wasn't even hanging out with any. No, he inherited slaves. His mother had four slaves. He inherited a slave called Ajax. Okay. 
And then he, then uh, her estranged husband or lover came and claimed that slave. But he was he was he worked for a slave trading company, and his uh, job was to groom, like William Wells Brown had the same job, to groom slaves for resale. So I mean, he you know he was all slavery, pro slavery all the way. And for them to say he's not, they say, well, you know, well, you know, Miranda says, oh, well, you know, I took liberty. He took liberties with the script, you know, it's poetic imagination. If you did a play in which Hitler was pro-Jewish, you think you would get, and take liberties with that? You think they'd do it on Broadway? Oh, no. <laughs> People make it sound like his childhood was like he was going to Summer Splash with his friends. He was hanging out with like um, some diverse United Carters of Benetton thing. Back in his islands, this is really weird how uh, people want to want to believe this. And uh, uh, we did an episode about why we don't like Hamilton, and we relied really heavily on your on your articles. But your articles were like very good. But one thing I found interesting was that people would keep dismissing you as a crank almost for making very logical objections, like this is a lie, and people are portraying it like it's uh, good. They were even doing stuff like sending black kids, um, as spending like taxpayer money or whatever as a charity to bring black kids to see Hamilton. Like this is something important for their lives. I wrote an le- uh, open letter to the New York City uh, Education Department and asked them to buy my book. My book is, my script is coming on book form by Powerhouse Books, Division of Simon & Schuster in September. But I said, you buy my book, you know, as you did that Hamilton script, they ought to be ashamed of themselves for distributing that uh, script to all those kids all over the country. It's part of the curriculum now. Well, let me ask you this. Walk us through the de- the development and what the actual play is about, because we're just kind of taking it for granted. People kind of know uh, about the play. I mean, like we've discussed that in response to Hamilton, but if you can just tell us the conception of it, when you decided to go from just writing articles against Hamilton to actually um, constructing a whole play and what that journey has been like and the response to it. I think I, I wrote two articles, but uh, it was a government shutdown. I was supposed to go to the, the National Gallery in Washington and show our film, Personal Problems, which was uh, directed by Bill Gunn, three hours long. And uh, as a matter of fact, there was just an article about Vanity Fair. It's one of the best play. I mean, I don't know whether you know Bill Gunn, but Bill Gunn was one of the great directors. Yeah. He's found too difficult to be, uh, Hollywood found him too difficult. He did Ganjin Hess. Yes, a great movie. And so we got him on the way out, and he did our film in 1981. It's about, it's uh, Bertha May Grosman stars in it, Walter Cotton, Jim Wright. So we were supposed to go and show that, and there was a government shutdown. So I said, you know, I had all these hotel fees I had to pay and bought airline tickets and everything. I said, well, why don't we do a reading of this play I'm working on uh, and at the New Rican? And so we got some actors together who'd been in other plays of mine and did a reading, and all hell broke loose. I mean, it was denounced in the Broadway world, the letters and New York Times. And, you know, I just attribute the backlash to the fact that these people are educated to be Europeans and I, they don't really know American history. And so when uh, Trump praises Andrew Jackson, well, that, that's the curriculum. I mean, I, they're, you know, they're American historians, like television historians like John Meacham, who comes on Morning Joe, looks like a historian, who believes the same thing, says that Andrew Jackson was uh, imperfect, even though, you know, he committed genocide against Native Americans. And as a matter of fact, invaded Spanish territory and destroyed a fort that was, had been taken over by Chato and Blacks. It was the Chato Black Alliance. They couldn't stand it because the Blacks were fugitives. Andrew Jackson felt that uh, that would give other slaves ideas. And so he invaded Spanish territory without permission of the president at the time and that just committed, just wiped it out, killed, beheaded people, the whole thing. So um, I said, well, why don't, we, why don't we test this thing? And we got the backlash. Now, after uh, Black Matters, excuse me, Black Lives Matter and the killing of uh, George Floyd, the whole thing's turned all the way around and people are really questioning American history. And I, I think that's why I see that as, as our being redeemed. So the play... Uh, merely exists, or excuse me, subsists or exists of uh, of uh, former fugitive slaves, you know, those owned by the scholars and Hamilton, indentured servants, and Native Americans. They leave that out. The solution to the Native American problem advocated by George Washington and Alexander Hamilton was extermination. As a matter of fact, I found a letter. I'm just a jack-legged street historian, but I found a letter that Chernow and these other people didn't find where Hamilton actually celebrates as an in Time Magazine, I sent the letter to them, celebrates the massacre of a Native American village. He said, hmm. uh, go and get the vigilantes, go get the savages, man, woman, and child, and demolish them. So they never talk about the Native American, even the, the academics who back Hamilton never talk about how he treated 
uh, Native Americans. So we got all these people coming back to teach Miranda and we're not putting them down. We're just educating him. And he finally realizes that he's left a lot of people out of the script and he blames it on Ron Cherno. And he and Ron Cherno have a falling out. And I didn't uh, notice that a falling out. Yeah, I have Cherno. No, I have Cherno. I think there's tension between the two. Okay. No, but I had, uh, I had uh, Ron Cherno actually play, played by an actor. Oh, the, oh, this is in your play. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. Yeah, Ron Cherno played by an actor and he and uh, Miranda, after Miranda has been educated, he accuses uh, Cherno of misleading him. And at the end, uh, he's changed. He's, he sees the light. So for anybody to say that, you know, we were hard on uh, uh, Miranda, didn't see the play. So finally, uh, we got a benefactor who gave us money to uh, Tony Morrison, permitted us to use her apartment. And uh, we saved like thousands of dollars. We finally got a benefactor. So we did a full production last October of the play. And none of the black women are prostitutes in this play. None of the black men are pimps. <laughs> which is, you know, the usual stuff that you get in movies and television. As a matter of fact, they got a thing called T-Valley. Have you seen the, the promos for that? Uh, they no. got a, they got a, yeah, they got a pimp prostitute movie coming up. I think it premiered Sunday on TV, written by Katori Hall, who wrote The Mountaintop that puts down Martin Luther King. Oh, no. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, go on. I was going to ask you how you, because um, this is something that I've seen happen quite often. I, I think you've seen this to an extent, T, because we talk about this one a lot, is the habit that people have of putting down our historical figures and revolutionaries, like, and just inventing things out of whole cloth. Like, uh, just, just yesterday, a, a journalist, a fairly well-known one, was uh, saying that uh, Frederick Douglass uh, did very poorly by his first wife, uh, mm -hmm. that he apparently he was running around on her. This is something that I've seen people say before, that uh, Frederick Douglass was, was cheating on his first wife. And, Feminists brought that up. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, that MLK was cheating with white prostitutes, uh, that uh, Malcolm X uh, was was on the down low. Like, there's these things that I, I used to see in um, like hate message boards, and uh, like if you'd ever see like somebody post on the internet about MLK Day, the, the, you know this would be the immediate response from white supremacists, and now it's just like passed into mainstream dialogue. What do you what do you think about that? New York Times Book Review is a, like uh, one of the, the central uh, places for black boogeymanism. So yesterday I. Uh, I, I found a, a picture of the staff, and it's mostly white feminists, which explains a lot. I don't see any black men or anything. I think they got a couple of white men. And I said, that makes a lot of sense because there's a lot of black boogeyman coverage in the New York Times uh, book review. So Pamela Paul is the editor of the New York Times book review, all right? So I ran across a show where she was on a panel putting on Cosby, okay? And so in my new book, which has not been reviewed here, I mean, there are a couple of reviews, why well, no... Confederate statues in Mexico. That's a long story about that. Uh, I interviewed her and I said, you put on Crosby. What about Roger Ailes, who was alive at the time? She refused to put him down. So they are corporate feminists who are co-opted, according to one writer, co-opted uh, a feminism that was working class and integrated. Gloria Steinem is the head of the corporate feminists. And they find it easier to jump on black men than to criticize the misogyny among their own ethnic groups. You understand? So like in Israel, uh, women can't sit on the have to sit on the back of the bus. I mean, I, I mean, you know, there's misogyny in these other ethnic groups. You understand? Yeah. But but the idea is that you don't give away the secrets of the community. You understand? So all this all this wrath has been aimed at black males. Now let me give one another example. There's a uh, woman of Indian heritage, a uh, filmmaker who did Beauty Is Truth about Alice Walker, and I'm one of the lead villains in there because I didn't like the movie. She puts down black people, uh, as a matter of fact, black men and women did not like in the Color Purple movie when Alice Walker didn't like it either. As a matter of fact, she said it wasn't based on her book. So Steven Spielberg took liberties and made the, the black men even more sinister than they appear in the books, okay? So, um, yeah, something I didn't realize that I read from you, but that Alice Walker herself had problems with what Steven um, Spielberg did. She said it wasn't, based, it wasn't based on her book. Now, let me finish the story. Mm -hmm. There's a, this woman uh, is an uh, Indian filmmaker, and uh, she critiques the, uh, you know, black male misogyny and all that in this film. And she has me in there. She has other people in there. She quotes me out of context. Women are slaves in India. They have slavery in India where women are slaves. Okay. They have mammalian child prostitutes on the street. 
in India, okay? But instead of critiquing that, she jumps on black men in America who have nothing to do with it. So, you know, we become the scapegoats of the international uh, feminist movement. And I mean, I don't have anything to lose by criticizing that. I ran in a lot of trouble for it. But what I did was to cultivate an international audience, a world audience. That was my answer to being scapegoated or being left for literary roadkill because I pointed out the fact that black men can be very terrible with women, okay? But they're not the only ones. So why don't they critique these other people? Why should we be the scapegoat for international feminism? Period. Well, when I was when I was uh, reading your readings to prepare for today's show, I found this quote by you, which which I thought was um, interesting, where you said, I've never said that black men cannot be crude in their treatment of women. I have been there myself. My position has been that we've that they've been singled out for uh, criticism or, you know, being the, the poster children of it. And that's uh, interesting that you said that, because a lot of times when people criticize you or demonize you in a piece, what they'll say is that what you're doing is that you're you're fighting for the right to for black men to be misogynist, or you're trying to deny that black men are capable of um, being misogynist. I find that's one interesting straw man that gets that gets used. That instead of academia is no, no different from the tabloid uh, culture. I mean, I had what's her name? I can't remember her name, but anyway, uh, New Republic had this woman misquote me. What's her name? I, I forgot. But anyway, this this uh, woman in New Republic misquoted me, said that I said that. Uh, the color purple was a Nazi conspiracy. No, what I said on the Today Show, which got me into trouble, was that the color purple was the kind of movie that the Nazis made about minorities in Germany. And I, yeah, you can prove that. There's a there's a film called Forbidden Films, distributed by Kino Larber, which talks about all these uh, you know Nazi films. As a matter of fact, they say, well, why can't you enjoy the dancing and the, and the singing? And of course, like, well, you know, Goebbels and all those people produce these beautiful, spectacular musicals. I mean, it was they're very entertaining. That's what I said on the Today Show, which got me into trouble. As a matter of fact, I was subjected to a boycott after that appearance on the uh, Today Show by white feminists at the University of uh, Louisiana at Beta Rouge. And the boycott collapsed because none of them had read my books. So there's no difference between the tabloid world, the gossip world, and academia. I know I've been around these people for years, decades. You know, I know how they think. So um, uh, that's so I, I try to. I said, well, you know, this is not true. So I wrote a letter. There's a woman named Chloe something, uh, the editor there. Uh, they said, well, we don't print letters. I wanted to correct this. Uh, we don't we don't print uh, letters. I said, well, uh, what about if I wrote an article? So I was in Paris. I wrote an article. And uh, I sent it to them and they said, well, this is not the uh, article that we want. So, I mean, you, you can't win. I mean, in the old days, when the guys are in charge, <laughs> to say that you can get a letter print, printed. But, yeah. you know, this movement has uh, some fascist uh, tendencies. I mean, I don't want to, I, I mean, this is what I want to say. People I call daughters of the patriarchy posing as feminists. So, for example, uh, Melissa Harris Perry and those people at... Uh, uh, NBC can jump on black football players. Remember that black football player? They said it raped somebody. Ray he never, Rice. He was never convicted. Not Ray Rice, but the other one, this kid down in Florida. He never. Okay. He, he was never convicted of anything. But they're on there. Famous Winston. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Matter, matter of fact, uh, uh, Jill Abrams, when she was uh, an editor, managing editor of uh, New York Times, uh, she had a whole whole paper connected to that case. You know what I'm saying? She's the one that wrote wrote the uh, book about Clarence Thomas and said that he read Playboy or something like that. But uh, they had Melissa Harris Perry, and she's, she got a successor there. They did a black boogeyman every week. There's been sexual harassment at NBC since the 80s, since the 1980s. You know what I mean? A lot of it was open secrets, too. And they can't critique. I mean, Bob Teague wrote a book about it uh, called Live in Color, where he talked about sexual harassment and what these women had to do good jobs at NBC, NBC. So what they're doing is that they're jumping on us, but they're protecting their employers. They're protecting their employers, okay? And they'll, and they'll take down, they'll join in taking down a white man, but only after he's not useful to white people anymore, where white people themselves have given the green light that you can take this guy down. So it's like, Weinstein has been an open secret for like 20 years, and suddenly people want to pat themselves on the back for um, taking him down when he was on his way out uh, anyway. It just became too unsustainable for him to keep getting getting away with it. But even then, it took a long time. They were still able to get a lot of other people out first before they finally... Um, Got to him. Well, you know, you know, Henry Louis Gates want to give him a, a Du Bois medal. Oh, I believe it. I mean, that's in WikiLeaks. We, uh, otherwise, we would have known about it. 
or how about Oprah Winfrey um, still not speaking out? Right. Like Oprah Winfrey is managing to signal boost right. uh, dubious Michael Jackson documentaries that uh, have been thrown out of court by these people. She spells with Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, she still won't speak out about him. She won't uh, signal boost the surviving Harvey Weinstein. She can even bankroll her herself if she wanted, if she cared so much about these things, you know? Some of the examples you gave in some of your writings I thought were really interesting about um, the kind of people I didn't know had come up on the Black Boogeyman uh, train. You know, like Betty, Betty Friedan, you, you discussed, uh, that she was actually um, somebody who was beaten by by her husband. I had no, I had no idea about that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. She had to wear makeup to cover. Uh, this is the second wave, the, the popular second wave feminist. She had to wear uh, makeup to cover bruises and stuff, but she can still traffic in uh, blackmail patriarchy tropes when, you know, her own husband. Well, Gloria Statham, too. Gloria Statham, too. Yeah. There are people that she had relationships like Mark Z- uh, Zuckerman, who ran the Daily News. I mean, these guys are misogynists. They're hardcore misogynists. And yet she uh, recently bragged, she recently bragged about how her hatred of uh, black men had been... Uh, exported mm, and and Philip Philip uh, who's the Roth is it Eli Roth or Philip Roth right uh, Philip Roth yeah yeah and and he recently had a book that's been adapted by HBO recently I think is it made to a series on plot against America plot against America yeah well, yo David Simon David Simon who had depicted uh, black men as pimps and prostitutes uh, and drug dealers in The Wire. He yeah. did Fought Against America and they had real men, real heroes in that one. And a lot of those feminist uh, writers and, and and woke feminist writers have been praising or discussing Plot Against America without calling for a retroactive cancellation. And I had no idea how bad even his own wife said Philip Roth was as far as being a misogynist. But it's always a certain level of nuance. Or She said he had an irrepressible rage toward women. That's how she put it. And they asked him, they asked him in Esquire, uh, you know, how do, how do you think the feminists would react to a certain book? He said, F the feminists. But yet they, they love him. They gave him a one, you know, wonderful. They, who's, the, who's the star of uh, Girls? Remember that? Uh, Lena Dunham. Yeah, she praised him too. Said, well, I don't care if he's a misogynist. He's a great writer. Yeah, Lena Dunham said she doesn't care if he's a misogynist. He's a great writer. But um, Odell Beckham, the football player, uh, gets uh, shredded by her for having the audacity, not even for anything truly misogynist, but for, I guess, not giving her sexual attention. First off, the idea that she thought she was entitled <laughs> to uh, sexual attention by a black man of that caliber was just amazing in and of, its, in and of itself, you know? The series ended with her, the actress... Uh, you know, having a black child. Having a black child. Oh, I didn't, I didn't even know that. That's heavy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and the funny thing is, the only like black character that she was involved with in the whole show was Donald Glover. I think it was in like season two or three or something. And then the show ends with her having a black child, but you don't know who the child's father is or whether the father's still in the picture, which to me was just like... <laughs> it's. It, it ended on the note that it was always supposed to end on. Um, the question I had for you um, in because uh, one of, one of your uh, uh, one of your works that I, I really appreciated was uh, another day at the front. Mm-hmm. It was a, a collection of your essays, and there's a couple of things that that really stood out to me. Um, one of those was uh, what it came across to me as like a, a defense of Booker T. Washington, mm-hmm. or at least uh, some some form of uh, apologetics, mm-hmm. uh, because there's there's um, always like sort of two different ways of looking at Booker T. Washington. There's always the sellout point of view or the working class point of view. And the way of looking at Booker T. Uh, Washington usually ends up being a direct comparison and contrast to W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just wanted to get a sense because um, in Adolf Reed's One of the Drums Saying Booker, he says that the uh, direct progenitor of uh, black intellectuals is Booker T. Washington. But in your essay, you actually say that um, Washington was more in tune with the masses, with uh, with the black working class, and the sort of the uh, the elite was W. E. B. Du Bois, who rarely ever set foot off uh, off campus. Can you right. like ex- expand just a little bit on your view of Washington? Because I, I I get now for the most part that people look at Washington as just another like in the Madam C. J. Walker movie that was uh, just released by uh, directed by Cassie Lemons. Uh, you know he's he's played as a misogynist, and that's often what I, the image that I see. But you seem to have a different view. Well, I don't know. I, I looked at his papers on Hampton, and I was very I was struck by the fact that. Uh, Tuskegee was hand-built. You know, the students helped to build some of the buildings. Mm-hmm. He got patronage. But, uh, I mean, I think if uh, only Tuskegee had graduated the uh, Commodores and uh, Tuskegee Airmen, that, that would have been enough for a contribution. But 
I think a lot of the, the intellectuals leave, about, uh, leave behind rhetoric while he actually built something. And I have a personal connection to Booker T. Washington because uh, when we were living in Chattanooga, uh, my uncle uh, supported our family because he was a tailor. And he learned the art of tailoring from a cousin who studied at Tuskegee. So when I think of Booker T. Washington, I think of all the food we had on the table as a result of my uncle being a, t- a tailor. And I think that the Southerners have a different viewpoint about Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington accused uh, Du Bois of coming to the South and making trouble, then going back to the North. And Du Bois had a lot of flaws in his background. Matter of fact, me and my, my late friend, Amiri Rocker, got into a big debate about his ties to the Nazi government. You know, he, Du Bois went to Germany uh, under a fellowship that was sponsored by some pro-Hitler guy who had lunch or dinner with Hitler. And Du Bois kind of praised the regime. I think he had lunch with uh, uh, some of the, some of the, Hess and some of the people. And, and as a matter of fact, what's his name? Uh, I'm trying to think of Lucas. There's a, there's a historian, at, at, uh, historian at, at Howard University who wrote a book about how Blacks, Africans were treated uh, through the Hitler, during the Hitler regime. And he talks about uh, how uh, Du Bois made some favorable remarks about the, the regime. And then Bernard Solers translated an interview uh, that, that uh, Du Bois made to a German newspaper in New York. And he said the same thing. So I think that that he was not entirely without flaws, mm. but Booker T. Washington actually built an institution, and that's his legacy. Well, I should also say that he wasn't the only one at the time, because mm. a lot of Americans, uh, like fat, in retrospect, mm. we we obviously have our view of fascism, but at the time, I mean, there was a, a massive fascist movement in the United States. A lot of uh, a lot of people were um, sympathetic towards fascism. The boom, they still. Um, they yeah. still are. Matter of fact, Hitler. Yeah, yeah. Hitler said he got a lot of his ideas from here. Right, and um, many many of the uh, uh, tactics for subjugation, for uh, resettlement, and so on, actually came from uh, Canada and the way that uh, Canadians uh, treated Indigenous people. Um, and on, on top of that, you know, Marcus Garvey um, once made uh, favorable comments towards both Hitler and Mussolini. But in retrospect, or and later on, he ended up having to refute those statements once he. But they were very popular. They were very, Mussolini's very yeah. popular in the United States and Churchill. Yeah. Churchill uh, made a tribute to uh, Hitler. I mean, uh, up until the fascists really started acting uh, in a coarse manner, for example, beating up Toscanini because he wouldn't play the state, their state, their little fascist song, uh, Mussolini was popular. As a matter of fact, Cole Porter and You're the Top, that song he wrote, he said, You're the Top, You're Mussolini. So the whole thing happened when they went uh, really crazy. So no, Mussolini was popular here. And they started arresting people in San Francisco. And they, there, there's something called the internment, the forgotten internment, where uh, Roosevelt put Italians, uh, Italian immigrants in camps out here mm-hmm. and respected the movement of Italian-Americans in Stockton and other places in California. Yeah, what a lot of people don't realize that is that even movements, the, the, the original progressive movement um, was sympathetic towards fascism. But I find it interesting that um, those, uh, I guess, like errors in judgment or whatever you'd want to call them, end up getting hung around the necks of of uh, black people whose sentiment, for the most part, wasn't very much different from a broad swath of Americans. Yeah, well, well I think there was more, there are more pro-Japanese uh, black fronts than uh, communists, according to The Question of Sedition, a book called Question of Sedition, where, oh, excuse me, J. Edgar Hoover wanted to indict the black press for being subversive. I miss the black press. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't we all, don't we all. One more thing I wanted to ask yeah. you was that um, like, you know, people, uh, it's almost like we, we um, study very briefly uh, black luminaries, relegate them to a corner and then almost disappear them. But a friend of mine, uh, Devin Springer, um, did a really good uh, piece on George Washington Carver and and his importance mm-hmm. in uh, developing like Sorry. a sustainable food movement in black Sorry. communities. Yeah, and and he and he was uh, somebody that was a protege of Booker T. Washington. So I wonder, like, if you if you're able to expand on this like um, strain of like uh, you know intellectualism, but also you know uh, like uh, sustainable ecology that was like a, a landmark of the Tuskegee the, the Tuskegee Institute. Well, I think I think a lot of this is in our do uh, Carol Cruz's book, which I refer to from time to time as a manual, mm-hmm. Crisis of the Negro Intellectual. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because when I went to New York, I was 22, 23, and I didn't realize any of this background. I didn't know what I was walking into, but there have been a whole history of competition between communists, you know, nationalists, you know, back and forth. Like there's a, like a Jewish black thing that doesn't occur out here. I mean, but it's like a Manhattan thing uh, that I was not aware of uh, when I was in New York until I read that book. 
uh, and I, I was very informative of the politics of New York, which uh, unfortunately sometimes gets spread all over the country. But uh, Du Bois talks about how Marcus Garvey, Elijah Muhammad, <coughs> excuse me, and others admired Booker T. Washington. Now, Elijah Muhammad had his faults, but uh, that was like a workers' cooperative. That's why I thought that Baldwin's hit at Elijah Muhammad in the fire next time was unfair, because Baldwin said they were getting their money from uh, Texas oilmen. Baldwin was sent out to interview Elijah Muhammad and to report back to his sponsors, the liberals. And he was saying they were getting their money from uh, uh, Texas oilmen. When this was like a workers' cooperative. I, I wrote a book called uh, uh, about, Muhammad, about Muhammad Ali. It was originally called Bigger Than Boxing. Now it's called the, the Complete Muhammad Ali. It was published in Montreal. And I interviewed a lot of the people who were, some of the people who were surrounding Elijah Muhammad in, the, in uh, Chicago. And they talked about how all the money would come in from the mosques and they would invest in farms and uh, ranch, ranches and places like that. And, they, and, and there was a guy from Harvard who directed their agricultural policies or their agricultural ideas. But then I got this new book from Les Payne. It's going to be a bombshell. That's coming out uh, about Malcolm X, where he talks about this really bad period where Malcolm was sent by Elijah Muhammad to negotiate with the Klan. Yeah. And that makes hard reading. Yeah. I'm very curious about that thing, too, because after Malcolm broke Elijah Muhammad, he was kind of vocal in his, you can tell he kind of regretted uh, doing that. And he started talking about different things that if he had to deal with the American Nazi movement now, uh, watch out, you guys are on alert, you know, but he kind of, you could see later in his career, he kind of regretted uh, that period. And to this day, a lot of white nationalists still love to bring it up. They love to bring up that Garvey met with the Klan and that uh, Malcolm X met with um, the Klan and George Rockwell and those types as well. Well, you know, I thought it was just one meeting. I thought he attended a rally or something like that, but it was just, these are sustained negotiations. Oh, that I didn't know. Okay. Because he, Elijah Muhammad thought that the Klan, these are working class, poor whites, would somehow help them get a separate nation or a separate state. Oh, I didn't know it was sustained. Okay. But I mean, it's, it's like really sad. It's really a sad period and it's like explosive stuff. When the book comes out, it's going to be controversial. But I've written about uh, full surprise winner, Les Payne. All right, y'all. So. That is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good.